welcome to SwineCast for October 10th. SwineCast, your connection at your convenience, made possible through the support of Elanco Animal Health. I'm your host, Ned Arthur. Thanks for hooking up today. SwineCast is tasked with creating an environment of learning and collaboration. Say what? We look for new ideas, innovative thinking, no matter what the industry, because eventually improving efficiencies alone cannot continue to carry the profitability ball. Want an example? Christopher Kacharik, an associate scientist at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, notes that on average farmers now put corn in the ground about two weeks earlier than during the 70s. Earlier plantings, ergo longer growing seasons, have generally contributed to the increasing corn yields of recent decades. But Kacharik, a terrestrial ecologist at the Madison Center for Sustainability in the Global Environment, warns the trend can only continue for so long. Kucharik says earlier plantings can't continue forever because ultimately farmers will have to contend with wintertime conditions and frozen soils. He anticipates a drop in the annual yield increases as that trend plateaus which could then be a threat to the food supply or our fuel supply today. So when someone asks what's new, you can tell them. If you like, or if you don't, tell us. Email to feedback at swinecast.com some of the factors you see affecting the future of this industry. Or call us at one swinecast I'm interested in what you think of what we're doing because it needs to be better to do more for you. Here's another interesting story. This research team, University of Delaware, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, the University of Hawaii, Oregon Health and Science University, has discovered that a dissolved form of manganese can keep toxic hydrogen sulfide in check in waterways, such as the Black Sea and Chesapeake Bay. Results reported in the September 29th issue of the journal Science. The study is based on research conducted in 2003 during a month-long expedition to explore the chemistry of the Black Sea. Nearly 90% of that mile-deep system is a no-oxygen dead zone containing large amounts of naturally produced hydrogen sulfide, which is lethal to most marine life. The scientists found that a chemical form of dissolved manganese can compose in the water or be mobilized from sediments originating from the continental slope and other sources. It can maintain the existence of the zone by reacting as a reductant with oxygen and as an oxidant with hydrogen sulfide, preventing the hydrogen sulfide from reaching the surface layer of water where most fish, algae, and microscopic plants live. So their research, our source of hydrogen sulfide. How might manganese be better utilized to impact this issue before the EPA regs on source generation kick in? Got a couple of links back at swinecast.com, give you a heads up on that. Along the lines of managing manure for fun and profit, here's a conversation with a waste solutions representative, Steve Dominic. Their company brings a manure management system from Denmark, which is based on multiple providers of manure a professional management team, waste treatment, biogas recovery. What struck me was a centralized location built around multiple waste providers with the nutrients returned to producers for land distribution. Listen in. Okay, Steve, what does Waste Energy Solutions do? Waste Energy Solutions uh, is a turnkey supplier of community-sized digester uh, plants. Community-sized is a relatively new term as related to digester plants, which is not an old term in the U.S. Give us some insight. 
the community size term basically came from the Danish experience of building digesters for the farm and then building digesters on a larger scale uh, for the community. The farm scale uh, digester projects that were built uh, were never very economical. They realized that in order to make them economical, they had to build them on a larger scale, involving many more farms. And it, it does seem like they were more a hobby project for producers who put them online. One of the things I've noticed in your literature is that it seems to work best when you can draw component materials from many sources. That's correct. Uh, that's one of the things that the, the Danes uh, developed uh, was co-digestion uh, know-how so that not just manure from the farms but uh, other substrates were fed to the digester for gas production such as fats, oils and greases, slaughterhouse wastes, biodiesel wastes, ethanol wastes and the like. Give us an overview of the process. What happens? We, we deliver these materials to a WES plant or a plant that someone has purchased from WES and at that point Where's the process begin? How do they commingle? How are they processed within that plant? And what's the output? Uh, wastes, once collected into the plant, are stored in a pre-storage tank, kept mixed, and then fed based on a particular recipe into the digester uh, to produce gas at a fairly constant rate. Uh, the biogas that's produced is collected and uh, stored in a biogas storage vessel. The digestate from that tank is emptied into, on a periodic basis, into an after-storage tank, which uh, also produces some gas, which is collected and again sent to the same biogas storage tank. The digestate, uh, after a period of time, in the after-storage tank, is then uh, shipped back to the farm where they want it back. If not, then it's either converted into liquids and solids. The solids could be used for bedding or for a substitute for peat moss or many other uses have been proposed for uh, the digestate solids. Uh, and the liquids are used as fertilizer. Sometimes the liquids will be concentrated uh, to remove as much water as possible uh, so that you're not having to ship uh, water the gas, in Denmark, they, they uh, generate electricity with it. In the U.S., you uh, might consider uh, selling the gas to a, uh, an industrial customer for burning in his boiler for whatever use he would like. Uh, or you could do a number of other things, such as separate uh, the CO2 from the uh, biogas, enriching the uh, biogas, uh, 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 making it more nearly 100% methane, and then you could inject it into a pipeline or you could uh, liquefy it and use it as a transportation fuel. Okay, so I'm a producer. I've sent my materials to the plant. The plant has shipped them back. How have they changed in nature from the time I sent them in until I got them back? Probably have gained in nutrients, but you've also gained a little bit in volume, liquid volume. The nutrients that are in the digestate are now more inorganic in nature and therefore much more readily taken up by the plants. The components, do I get back NPK? How do I measure that? Or I will know the composition when it comes back from the plant. Our program is to give you the analysis of the digestate that you're getting back. 
uh, showing you the NPK values that are in the digestate. Again, the NPK values, the, the total amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that is in the uh, manure will be exceeded in terms of the total amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that are in the digestate. So, and, and it's, again, more mineralized. And because we operate as much as possible in the thermophilic range, you'll have a significant uh, reduction in weed seeds, in pathogens, uh, and in parasites. I have phosphorus issues. How does that impact? We can separate the solids from the liquids in the digestate. By doing so, we basically separate the phosphorus from the rest of the nutrients. So we can give you nutrients back that are pretty much phosphorus-free. What else should I ask you about that? Oh, how much does it cost? <laughs> we, we work with farm groups as, as well as with uh, private developers who uh, would be open to having local investment in their, in their projects. Uh, these projects aren't inexpensive, but uh, they're not on the scale of a, an ethanol plant, for example. They're much more affordable. And uh, we, we keep looking for returns on plants like this in the neighborhood of uh, 20% or so. You're in the Midwest area. Where do you have some going in? Um, we're relatively new, um, but we have a couple of... Uh, feasibility contracts uh, in uh, Michigan and, and in Iowa uh, right now. Uh, so uh, we expect uh, to have some um, plan awards um, at the conclusion of the feasibility studies uh, by the end of the year. Steve Dominic, the mystery of the missing pigs continues, and now a federal judge in Maryland has delayed for two months a decision regarding whether Carol Sisler Sr. and Carol Sisler Jr. had any knowledge of the disappearance of more than 100 pigs from the farm they operate. State ag officials have issued warnings the pigs may be infected with trichinosis. U.S. District Judge Andre Davis said he did not have enough evidence to determine a connection between the Sislers and the disappearance of the pigs, and he'd give prosecutors and defense attorneys 60 days to deliver more information. That seems like a good seg to animal stress issues or concerns caused by seasonal transportation and stocking density, so I'll use it as such. I spoke with Eric Berg at the Lehman Conference following his National Pork Board Research Update on stress as determined by body temperature and hormone levels. Actually, then at the end of today's program, I'll go ahead and run the audio from his presentation. On that segment, you'll hear references to slides, but he did a good job of sharing the gist of his findings verbally, therefore audibly. But in this segment, I'm talking with Eric Berg. We were evaluating the effects of transport, stocking density, and uh, season of the year on overall those effects on stress as well as ultimately meat quality. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, we've seen a reported increase in pale soft and exudative meat, which is a, actually a decrease in pork quality. And this is supposed to be along with a time when we're paying more attention to the welfare of the pig. Mm -hmm. So by improving the welfare of the pig, we're essentially improving the meat quality in theory. So we were looking to see if there was some type of interaction with uh, different seasons of the year and uh, some of the production practices that we have. Um, we evaluated, a, we identified a production setting, a, a producer in northern Iowa, and we inserted temperature recording devices into these pigs 
So we could use the body temperature as a means of real-time determination of, of increase in body metabolism. Mm -hmm. At the production center, we subjected these pigs to what we call conventional handling, which involved a, uh, a rapid loading onto the transport vehicle. Uh, there was a lot of shouting involved, and there was some hotshot use. Uh, so we tried to mimic a model that the truck had to get on the road, so we had to load these pigs in an expedient fashion. We compared that to a uh, traditionally welfare-friendly type of movement. We call it the passive movement, where the pigs kind of moved at their own pace, didn't really push them that hard to get them into the trailer. So during that time, we had those temperature recording devices in there so we could see, compare those two methods to see if their body temperatures went up in the summer, the fall, and in a, in a winter period. After that, these pigs, uh, they all had the same transport distance on the, tra on the trailers. Uh, once they got to the packing plant, half of that group was rested for 45 minutes, which is a pretty short period of time for larage compared to a more traditional larage, which was three hours. Uh, also, just like uh, with the loadout, we could evaluate the temperature differences of those pigs while they were in larage. Um, and then compare that over the three seasons. During transport, I got to back up, uh, half of the pigs are subjected to a tight, tight fit where all the pigs, you know, I wouldn't say they were crammed in there, but they're, they compared that to a loose stocking density where the pigs could lay down if they, if they found it was necessary. So what we saw was that while pigs were calm before we started moving them on the trailer, in the wintertime their temperature was just a little bit higher as compared to a temperate climate or a cold climate. Now, when we dug into that, that kind of makes sense because these pigs are calm and they're, they've adapted their metabolism to keep their body temperature up in relationship to the cold. Once they got to larage, the hot season pigs, after transport and being rough handled, that temperature was higher in the hot season, and they were colder in the cool season. So they had time to cool down during transport, etc. So they kind of flip-flopped. So that made sense to us. The cortisol levels were actually higher in the uh, loose fit, uh, loose density pigs that were handled more passively. Uh, this was kind of a contradiction to us because you would think that pigs that had the ability to lie down would have less of a stress hormone. But our, our conclusion there was that passively handled pigs were calm going into the trailer. And then when they got into a loose handled position, the movement of the trailer and everything may have actually caused some more stress into them. So there was a slight benefit to handle them a little rougher and, and put them in the trailer a little bit tighter. That way the movement of the trailer didn't affect them as much. They weren't. Uh, we didn't have a video camera on them, but other research has shown that pigs in a loose stocking density kind of flop around a little mm -hmm. bit more, so they may be more prone to motion sickness and, and just a different type of stress. Uh, the big take-home message from there was during the hot time of the year, the pigs that had a short larage time, so uh, the 45 minutes, um, they actually had better meat quality. So that compared to the uh, conventionally handled uh, three-hour larage. So what we found was that the pigs actually probably heated up 
as a result of that during the hot temperature and it caused their meat quality to be poorer so in layerage so mm-hmm. they had more time to gain more heat and that ultimately affected the meat quality so the big take-home thing for us uh, we got the most out of was that a shorter layerage period and when it's hot actually improves the meat quality a time frame of the study this is uh, since the pigs actually ingested the temperature device it had to be relatively short uh, actually, the, they retained those those temperature loggers pretty well. They're about the size of two or three dimes that are glued together. And they started, uh, what they did is used a pill popper, and they just in, had these pigs ingest that, and they started doing that on 100-plus pigs at 10 o'clock at night. And they usually f- finished in the wee hours of the morning around 3 and then they'd start load out at 5.30. So the last pig to get those those uh, temperature recorders, they still had a good time to recover from the, the stress of, of being force-fed these, mm-hmm. these pill poppers. And they, all trans, they were all butchered between 7.30 and uh, what's three hours after that, 10 uh, 10.30 at the packing plant and they were had 85 percent recovery so the, they did a pretty good job of keeping those uh, data loggers in in the digestive system you say that uh, especially in warm weather the shorter larage we have better quality meat how do you evaluate that how do you identify that the meat's better quality at that point well just like you and i i guess when it's hot we're a little more honorary so when when pigs get off the trailer the first thing they do is establish a dominance hierarchy in the pen now all these pigs were they were they kept they were kept in layerage with their contemporaries so there wasn't any strange pigs to establish a new dominancy hierarchy so my guess is they they got off the trailer uh they either had established that hierarchy or they established it right away and then they went in after 45 minutes right up to to be bled out uh in the slaughter process whereas the other three you know they got off and they off the trailer and they had three hours yet to kind of mill around and it was hot so they they probably did a little bit more fighting. We didn't have uh, video cameras on them to make any strong conclusions with regard to that but that's that's something that other studies have seen where they actually have videotaped them. Typically we don't think think of those uh, pigs starting to fight again that soon but uh, once you hit as the science says after four hours, the pigs start to mill around, start to refight again. So between two and four hours is what they recommend at the packing plant for a large time. But now, I mean, based on the information you have, shorter is better. Yeah, especially in the hot season. Hmm. And in the in the winter, you think it's just that they they aren't as well. They'd be just as active, perhaps. Yeah, they may be just as active, but there, there's a strong relationship between the muscle temperature and the poor meat quality. So uh, we used uh, digestive tract temperature as our estimate of body temperature. We didn't get a muscle temperature. So we used that, and the cold season pigs definitely had lower body temperatures. So their metabolism wasn't kicking in gear as much in the cold season. Dr. Eric Berg, is there anything else I should ask you about that? Anything else that you found interesting or surprising? Um, we're doing some follow-up work now with tying the, that the pig's body temperature with the ambient temperature within the trailer. So we're, some of that follow-up, some of the questions, and we're looking at different trailer types now. Uh, probably the most popular transport device for a large number of pigs are these possum belly trucks that are double-decker, 
And there's been a significant amount of research in the European community looking at the differences between top and bottom. And these possum belly trailers, the the middle section of that actually lies between the wheels. So there's theoretical evidence that says that they're going to heat up more in there and they're probably going to have poorer meat quality just because they're down in the belly of that trailer. So we're looking at that now as a follow-up. That's Dr. Eric Burt. Now, along the lines of something to think about, and Dan Murphy from The Meeting Place treads those lines very well. Well, about a month ago, I did a column that uh, I'm not congratulating myself for for any sort of uh, uh, prescience, but it was dealing with the misinformation that seems to surround most of the marketing of organic foods. And as, as you well aware, and most of your listeners are, are aware, you see organic on the label, and there's a whole range of, of benefits and attributes associated with it that simply aren't true. Being organic has nothing to do with fair trade, has nothing to do with humane animal handling. And as we found out uh, just a few weeks ago with this whole E. coli and spinach uh, uh, outbreak, it apparently has nothing to do with food safety either. Yet when you look at much of uh, the rhetoric, the literature, the, the campaigning that's done by a whole range of activist groups, not just the radicals, but in many cases the interest groups that, that are working towards various uh, aspects of, of reform, quote-unquote, of the food system, you see an enormous amount of energy and attention devoted to the promotion of organic farming, organic production, organic food processing as some sort of solution to the problems that, that are alleged to be intrinsic to our current conventional food production system. Now, what, what I argue is that's the noise. That's what's distracting us from the real issues. And, and Ned, I looked at three of them that I think are far, far more uh, challenging long-term than anything surrounding organic versus conventional food production. The first one is land use, and, and this covers all of agriculture, particularly livestock production. You're seeing pushback in, in many areas, not only on specific aspects of livestock production, such as initiatives to ban gestation crates and to ban foie gras production and so forth, which may seem tangential to larger issues. You're seeing zoning. You're seeing local and state-level regulations that are restricting the siting of, of uh, pork production facilities, of feedlots, and even uh, ranching and grazing uh, out in the western states. This, I'm arguing, is going to be just an absolute front-burner issue for the entire food industry when you look at population trends, when you look at development, when you look at the shrinking base of agriculture arable farmland we have available. The second was labor issues, and, and certainly the immigration and the illegal alien debate has put uh, this larger uh, consideration uh, in front of the public and in, and in front of our lawmakers and policymakers. But as you're also aware, no one's proposing solutions. We're just battling over who's right and who's wrong here. And again, I feel if you look at the larger food industry, and again, not just agriculture, which is a big part of it, but if you look at food service, if you look at the larger hospitality industry, and if you look at the production and processing facilities that supply those uh, industries, we have a potential 
problem on our hands, no matter how much automation, no matter how many efficiencies are built into all of the steps of food uh, production and manufacturing and distribution. And that brings us to the last issue I identified, which is transportation. And, and here again, uh, with energy as being such a central and, and pervasive, not only political, but economic issue uh, facing our, our policymakers and, and the public, uh, particularly as we approach the election uh, here, this needs to be put in perspective for what it means to the food processing and distribution system we have put in place. There's tremendous efficiencies to be gained by this whole idea of centralized production and just-in-time distribution. But what does that mean if energy becomes cost prohibitive? What does it mean if it's considered no longer environmentally sustainable? And what does it mean for both the farmers on the ground as well as those people involved in all aspects of the food production chain if, in fact, we are no longer able to sustain cost-effectively this entire network, this infrastructure that we have built up. In my mind, this is what the industry needs to be talking about. This is the issues that need to be placed in front of our, our government and our policymakers and leave these almost sideshows about debating organic versus conventional or sustainable versus conventional or all the other debates that go on on the sidelines where I think they belong. Dan Murphy, that's Swinecast for today. Though I will be running that full presentation from Eric Berg before we close, take a listen as there's more data provided than what he and I discussed, if you have time. In any case, thanks for listening. Swinecast made possible through the support of Elanco Animal Health. I'm your host, Ned Arthur. We'll be talking soon. If you need me to speak up, just please do one of these or something. Um, this was a study that was actually funded by the Welfare Committee a year or so ago, and uh, I have kind of crunched everything down you know, for the 10-minute time allotment I have, so hopefully we'll have time for questions. I'm sure you'll have some questions at the end, otherwise we can talk about it at the poster session tonight at 5 o'clock. Some real quick background, what we were looking for is in the interim between the 1996 poor quality audit and the 2006 poor quality audit, there was a, an apparent really large increase in the occurrence of pale soft and exudative meat. So a number of people were, you know, how did that happen? They were asking, you know, have pigs gotten too muscular, which has led to poor quality meat? Uh, has animal welfare been compromised? You know, all the things you learned in your animal science classes that could deal with postmortem physiology and how that could affect the, the occurrence of bad quality pork. So there's been quite a bit of research looking at uh, genetic aberrations in there with rendement napole gene and of course porcine stress syndrome has been around for a number of years. And during that 10 year interim, the uh, paleen was approved for use and uh, there's been a great deal of research looking at that and its effect on poor quality. However, uh, there's been little domestic research that has looked at some of these things with regard to uh, things with regard to transport and uh, handling prior to transport as well as uh, time and layerage, combination of those three. So this, this is actually uh, work done by a grad student of mine, former grad student, he is now Dr. Chad Carr. 
and this was a major portion of his PhD dissertation. And we wanted to look at, we wanted to get some way to assess the body metabolism of a pig, but we didn't want to disrupt the way that pig acted. We wanted that pig to still act like a pig. So we took a tip from some of our ruminant physiology friends who have used the, these eye buttons. And I've, I've seen these reported more frequently now in the literature. And uh, these eye buttons are temperature data loggers that are the size of two dimes glued together. So they're pretty convenient, and I'll, I'll tell you how we use those. So we worked in cooperation with Tyson Foods, found a producer that was willing to cooperate with us on this project. And we had a great, a great working relationship with the Tyson plant down at Columbus Junction. They gave us pretty much free reign, and they really provided great input when we started looking at different layers times. So the objectives were to determine the effects of uh, seasonal environment. We had three different seasons that we looked at. On-farm handling intensity, we'll describe these in detail in a second. Transport stocking density, and then diff two different times in layerage. And we wanted to look at those effect on digestive tract temperature based on those little eye buttons that could record temperature in five minute intervals or whatever you set them for. Uh, blood cortisol levels is, is what we used as our stress hormone for, for this project. Then we type poor quality in there at the end. So we had pigs about 275 pounds, 125 kilograms. They were genetic pork market hogs. These were really a good group of pigs. They were, they were a nice set of pigs that we used in this. Actually, I would have preferred to have a crappier set of pigs so that we could see if you know our treatments really exacerbated the problem. So the three seasonal environments, the first treatment we had, we had a heat stress, uh, the temperature that day that these pigs were being loaded and transported was 22 to 35 degrees centigrade. What the slide doesn't say was how humid it was. It was everybody was pretty hot and sticky. The temperate climate, which was actually the fall, and a cold stress was winter. Uh, this was a good cold stress day. It was actually sleeting that day, and it was it was pretty typical of, of the winter. And I believe we did that in in January or early February. All these pigs were individually snared, 112 at a time, and some pretty big, bulky grad students that could help do that. And then they ingested those little eye buttons. Okay, so between the time that that was ingested, we started recording the digestive tract temperature to the time that they were eviscerated. Handling intensity, half of those then were broken into a conventionally handled group, which, uh, can't see it here, but Big Dave here, he's, this is, we called that conventional handling. We didn't want to call it rough handling or anything. That because it really wasn't. Still had the hurdles, had a hot shot, used it when needed, but there was a lot of yelling, a lot of waving of hands. Like, we were late to load the trailer, we got to get these pigs loaded. We called that conventional. So we moved these pigs at a rapid pace to get them loaded in the trailer. The next, called passive, which was more quiet moving, used the hurdles to move the pigs, but didn't really push the pigs, just kind of let them go at their own pace. They were loaded in separate trucks that were equal dimension, equal design, and uh, separated into two stocking densities. The middle two pens were used for the loose stocking density because they were larger. We added two non-test pigs in there to get that 0.4 meters squared per kilogram of body weight, which was, I think we took out of a granite paper, 
This would this enough this is enough space that would allow the pigs to lie down if they wanted. The tight stocking density was at either ends of the trailer, uh, and they were didn't have room to lie down. Time in the larage was 45 minutes, which is a very short larage time as far as uh, things go at a packing plant. And a more conventional larage was three hours. Uh, here's kind of the breakdown, 112 market barrels split down into conventional and passive handling, then split further to tight and loose, and then uh, 45 minutes versus three hours in larage. Collected blood at the point of exsanguination when they're bleeding those pigs out for, our, for later cortisol analysis. Uh, eye buttons were retrieved at, at evisceration. We used a metal stud finder to identify those. And I believe we had just around, just less than 80% recovery of those eye buttons. So some of them may have passed through. They did a ski, they did a walk through through the trailer to see if they could find any that may have been, been expelled. In, in the digesta, but they have pretty good recovery and they found those eye buttons on the evisceration line. 45 minutes in the long isthmus muscle, we took pH, and then 30 hours post-mortem, 410 loins from each group were brought back to MU for further analysis. Digestive tract temperature. This is prior to loadout, this slide. So blue, of course, blue is cold, temperate, these are... The thing that we found most interesting, and this kind of struck us right away, was that the body temperature was highest in the cold stress when these pigs were just chilling out before before they started with their conventional and passive handling. And actually during heat stress, body temperature was lowest. Now this, this graph kind of distorts things a little bit. Not a lot, if you look, not a lot of difference between that body temperature was significant, but it struck us when we looked when we were looking at this. What this is showing is that the pig's metabolism is actually working to keep it warm in that cold stress. So the calm pig, their their body temperature is maintained higher during that cold stress. Digestive tract, this is the temperature during larage, so this was after they've been pushed onto the trailer, after they've been transported to larage. Uh, we broke that the I button time into pre-handling or pre-loading, loading, transport, and larage. Uh, and I'm just showing the slide that showed the biggest differences. So things have kind of switched. During larage, those pigs have been stressed out a little more. They're not calm anymore, so the heat stress temperature was the highest. Cold stress was the coolest. And that's just an average of that time in larage. Also keep in mind we're comparing 45 minutes to three hours. Here's the 45 minute and three hours. Three hours, they had time to get their temperature up. This is just the main effect for that uh, body temperature during layer. Uh, here's our blood work that we looked at. Let me get my brain around this one. Uh, the heat stress, three hour larage was the highest. Now this is, this is contrary to some of the things that we've seen. We've always told producers to deliver their pigs so that they could have at least two hours to recover from transport stress. They actually recommend two to four hours to have them recover from, from that transport stress. Well, in our study, it appeared that, that during that time when it was hot, these pigs' body temperature would go up and also their stress levels would go up. 
Uh, some of the tabular data that we have here looking at poor quality differences across the three seasonal environments, temperate, cold stress, and heat stress. If you look here, uh, these are these L-star values are the lightness values. Uh, the higher they are, the paler they are. This is bordering on kind of pale at a 50. Typically, we think of a 52 to 54 as maybe getting too pale, but they're significantly different. But there's not probably a big enough difference for you to see with your eye. Okay, so the heat stress, sure they were more pale, but it's probably not that big of a deal. They had more purge loss, more moisture loss during that, that hot summer season, and that's not atypical from what we see from packing plant data that's out there. Uh, if you look at <coughs> passive versus conventional handling, as we go down the line, the actually what we see is there, there are significant differences and some trends here, but really they favor the, the rougher handling because the passive handling had a paler colored loin chop. But are they, you know, as far as the industry is concerned, are those big enough differences to, to tell people to, it's okay to move your pigs rapidly? Maybe what's going on here, this is this is something that we've talk, talked about with some of my industry friends. We've concentrated so much on our animal welfare, uh, moving these pigs gently and, and getting them to go at their own pace. But once they get right up to that point of stunning, then the stress kicks in. And they haven't had a lot of stress ahead of time. Other than transport, they haven't been handled in a rough manner, even at the packing plant. They've been moved at at a passive manner, then all of a sudden they get right up to that point of slaughter and that fight or flight kicks in. So it could ultimately have a negative effect because they haven't had a progressive level of stress leading up to that point right when the lights go up. <coughs> um, loose and tight stocking density. Uh, actually, there's a slight disadvantage to, to transporting them loose. Um, anybody know why? Am I allowed to talk to my audience <laughs> other than that? Why would loose, loose stocking density lead to a little greater purge loss, poor quality meat? Did you monitor the behavior at all? No, we didn't have any, any video in or anything like that. You could have a difference in terms of how long before you lie down and rest on the Right, yeah. If, if you've ever stood on a moving platform, your balance gets off. Uh, I've got a little kid in the car. They're maybe more apt to motion sickness anymore. When I was growing up, we didn't get all strapped in like we have kids now. So moving around, everybody got sick more. So just that moving around in there before they lie down could lead to a greater amount of stress. And we saw that's the same thing with the uh, level of cortisol in those uh, loose versus tighter packed pigs. The pigs that were tightly packed in there wasn't as much motion. And we've seen video like that from other studies. The L-star values, if we look at passive versus conventional handling, there's a two-point difference here, 49 to 47, and that's getting pretty close to what you can see with the naked eye. So the uh, loose stocking density, if they were handled passively versus conventionally, they were paler. 
So there could be, again, something to do with just that cumulative amount of stress that could be leading to the reduction in the amount of glycogen that would be available for lactic acid production post-mortem. Um, time and large, three hours versus 45 minutes. Again, there's some, some significant differences. We see that the actually the shorter term is slightly better for meat quality traits, but really, again, my comment on the bottom, they're significantly different because we had a great number of observations, but as far as the industry is concerned for the applicability of that product, the saleability of that product, it's probably not that big a deal. These are pretty good pigs. When you have a pH at 30 hours, up near 5.8, like you see here, that says pretty good pork. Synopsis, pigs exposed to the heat stress at higher cortisol levels, uh, higher concentrations of cortisol in their blood by the time they were examinated. Digestive tract temperatures were higher during larage. Uh, perch loss of the pork was higher. Uh, loins were more pale. And the kind of the big take-home thing that we had was during the hot summer season, it may do better for pork quality and the welfare of the pigs if you have a shorter length of larage. Was really the big take home from that one. Questions? Yes. Your uh, handprint was a different the same handlers, it was packing folks from the packing plant, and this plant is a welfare, a welfare audited plant, and all of, even though my guys had to go through welfare training just because they were collecting blood down there, so they, uh, but it was the packing plant personnel, so they were dealing with both groups, 45 minutes, it was the same, it was the same people, but they were packing plant employees. Okay. Any other questions? Let's thank Gary.